Greetings, and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge with publishing a recent JAMA article into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on September 16th. The article for that call will be titled, A 62-Year-Old Woman with Skin Cancer Who Experienced Wrong Site Surgery, Review of Medical Error by Dr. Tom Gallagher. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is uh, Dr. John Foreman, uh, first author of the publication Diet and Lifestyle Risk Factors Associated with Incident Hypertension in Women, uh, published uh, in the uh, July 22nd, 29th issue of uh, JAMA. Welcome, Dr. Foreman. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. Great. John uh, Foreman is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He provides inpatient renal consultation at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where he is the associate physician in the renal division, uh, and provides ambulatory care to patients with renal disease uh, at Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates. He is a cardiovascular and renal epidemiologist with research efforts uh, focusing upon the epidemiology, etiology, and prevention of hypertension. Uh, the purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author about his research findings, and together Dr. Foreman and I uh, will discuss how we will help you translate this research into improvements in your practice. Here's how the call will proceed. Dr. Foreman and I will spend about 10 minutes summarizing uh, his findings. I will then take about five minutes to draw out some implications for the real-world practice setting and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. I do want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which you get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation in terms of questions, uh, but also offering up your experience, will be invaluable to the call. There are approximately 75 phone lines connected to the call today, with generally several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. Foreman, who will now provide an overview of his recent article. Dr. Foreman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start with a comment on why we did this study. Uh, we did not. We did this study not because we were interested in whether lifestyle factors are associated with developing hypertension. Uh, the association between lifestyle and the development of hypertension has already been studied on numerous occasions and in numerous cohorts. 
We already know that factors such as having a lower BMI, exercising more, eating a healthy diet, et cetera, et cetera, are associated with lowering a lower risk of developing hypertension. And furthermore, there are already randomized trials in which modification of all of the individual factors that we studied in this paper led to decreases in blood pressure uh, with the exception of analgesic use for which randomized trials show an increase in blood pressure with their use. So given that we already know modification of these factors can potentially lower blood pressure and prevent hypertension, studying the association between these individual lifestyle factors and the risk of developing hypertension was not our main interest. Instead, our main goal of this analysis was to attempt to quantify what's known as the attributable fraction of hypertension due to modifiable lifestyle factors, which in the paper is noted as the population attributable risk. The attributable fraction or attributable risk is the percent of all cases of a disease that can be attributed to a given risk factor or set of risk factors. And in this paper, we estimated the attributable risk of hypertension for six lifestyle factors that are modifiable. The ultimate goal of our analysis was to be able to make a comment such as, if all of the individuals in the study had achieved these healthy lifestyle goals, then hypothetically X percent of hypertension could conceivably have been prevented. So with that goal in mind, we analyzed the second nurse's health study, which is a large prospective cohort that is relatively unique in the richness of lifestyle and dietary information that is collected. We started out with a subset of the second nurse's health study, which comprised about 84,000 women who were basically healthy at baseline. And by healthy, I mean that we excluded individuals who had hypertension at baseline. We excluded those who were taking antihypertensive medications and those who had abnormal blood pressure at baseline, which we defined as a systolic greater than 120, a diastolic greater than 80, or both. And we also excluded women who had known cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or malignancy. So essentially, at the start of the study, we were dealing with a relatively healthy population of women. We analyzed their diet and their lifestyle factors over 14 years of follow-up and tracked who developed hypertension. So using this cohort, we first analyzed all of the six modifiable risk factors individually to verify that each one was indeed associated with the risk of developing hypertension. And to no one's surprise, we found that a lower BMI, a higher DASH score, a higher degree of physical activity, modest alcohol consumption, and avoidance of over-the-counter analgesics as well as supplemental folic acid intake were all independently associated with the lower risk of developing hypertension, and that by far, body mass index showed the strongest association. So in order to go from here uh, with these individual lifestyle factors to calculating attributable risks, we first had to dichotomize the six risk factors. And although the associations between the risk factors and hypertension are not dichotomous, uh, this is a necessary evil in calculating attributable risk because there needs to be a group that's defined as not having the risk factor and a group that is defined as having the risk factor. So thus we defined six low risk factors which we examined. Uh, number one, a body mass index of less than 25 or a normal BMI. Number two, an average of 30 minutes per day of vigorous exercise, which we defined as jogging, running, swimming, biking, racket sports, or other aerobic activity. Number three, a DASH-style diet, which we specify to be the top 20% of DASH scores. Uh, number four, modest alcohol intake, which we limited to no more than 10 grams per day on average, approximately one drink or less per day. Number five, use of over-the-counter analgesics fewer than once per week. And number six, use of at least 400 micrograms per day of supplemental folic acid. 
Each of these dichotomous lifestyle factors individually contributed a statistically significant fraction of new-onset hypertension, with uh, BMI being the obvious 800-pound gorilla, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, according to our study and according to the definition of the attributable risk, we hypothesized from the results of this study that if all women maintained a BMI less than 25, i.e. a normal BMI, then up to 40% of hypertension could potentially be prevented. The weakest factor of the six was the absence of folic acid supplementation, which we calculated as, calculated as contributing 4% of new hypertension cases. All of the other factors fell in the middle between, um, in between 40 and 4%. We then grouped these low-risk factors together into combinations of three, four, five, and all six healthy lifestyle factors and calculated the attributable fractions for each grouping. Again, the attributable fraction is the fraction of hypertension that is attributable to not having the low-risk combination. So based on our analysis, we hypothesized that if women that, that if all women who did not simultaneously have three low-risk factors, that is women who did not have a normal BMI, uh, did not exercise daily, and did not eat a DASH-style diet, if all of those women, quote-unquote, changed over to having a normal BMI, exercising daily, and eating a DASH-style diet, then 53% of all new-onset hypertension may potentially have been prevented. Uh, this fraction increased to 58% if the grouping also included moderate alcohol intake, to 72% if the grouping also included avoidance of over-the-counter analgesics. And finally, we calculated that 78% of all new onset hypertension could conceivably have been prevented if women who did not maintain all six factors, quote-unquote, changed over to having all the six healthy lifestyle factors. Now, recall that at the beginning I said the main goal was to be able to comment on how much of all hypertension could hypothetically be prevented through lifestyle modification. So if there was one statistic that represents the goal of the study, it would be that 78% of all hypertension cases could potentially have been prevented through lifestyle modification. Now, other potentially interesting findings from this study include that, first of all, it didn't matter from a statistical standpoint, whether or not a woman had a family history of hypertension. We found that lifestyle modification may hypothetically prevent hypertension to a similar degree in women with or without a parent who had hypertension. On the other hand, uh, adiposity was critical in determining whether the other lifestyle factors were associated with development of hypertension. And to illustrate, uh, among the women who had a normal BMI, uh, a combination of the other five healthy factors had an attributable risk of 62%. Uh, in contrast, for obese women, a combination of the other five healthy lifestyle factors did not significantly reduce the risk of developing hypertension. So this suggests that weight trumps everything else, and obese, obese women may not be able to lower the risk of hypertension by following the other lifestyle recommendations unless they also lose weight. I should mention that this study has limitations. Uh, for example, this was a cohort study and not a randomized trial, and therefore our calculations of attributable risk are purely hypothetical and are dependent upon a real causal relationship between the risk factors and hypertension. Uh, on the other hand, one could argue that based upon prior randomized studies of the individual risk factors, such as randomized trials of weight loss or the DASH trial, uh, that we are on reasonably solid ground when it comes to asserting causality. Uh, furthermore, a randomized trial of all six low risk factors is probably not feasible. 
Another substantial limitation is that we only had 14 years of follow-up, and since we did not follow these women for their entire lives, we cannot really state that hypertension was prevented, as it may simply have been delayed through the risk factor reduction. Uh, nevertheless, delaying the onset of hypertension may be, for many years, may be, or several years, may still have substantial public health benefits. Uh, and then there is the issue of uh, generalizability. So only 3.1% of the participants in this study maintained the three healthy lifestyle factors of having a normal BMI, exercising daily, and eating a DASH-style diet, and fewer than 1% maintained all six healthy lifestyle factors. So the question remains, if one wanted to act upon the results of the study, how feasible would it really be to get everyone to follow these six uh, factors? And although the answer might be that it's not very feasible, the answer would also have to be that changing the lifestyle of a fraction of individuals would still lead to public health benefits. So the definition of success would not necessarily need to be equal to, quote, universal adherence to all six lifestyle factors. Uh, the other answer to the issue of feasibility is that achieving all six, although hypothetically better than changing just one, is not required uh, to result in benefit, and that even changing one may result in benefit. Uh, finally, I should point out that the study did not include men and consisted almost entirely of white individuals. Uh, however, based on studies in other cohorts and trials of individual factors, there's reason to believe that these healthy lifestyle factors are also associated with a lower risk of hypertension in men and in other races. Um, I suppose I'll, I'll leave it there and, and conclude by saying that I believe that based upon the results of this study that the great majority of hypertension uh, could be prevented by lifestyle modification. And I'd also like to allude to what was an excellent editorial on the same issue of JAMA written by Veronique Roger. And in that editorial, she points out that lifestyle is not necessarily uh, restricted to a personal choice by the individual, uh, particularly when the individual's choices uh, would run counter to societal trends. Uh, thus, uh, moving forward and, and thinking about how to act on achieving a healthy lifestyle, it may not be enough to focus solely on the individual in the clinic, and that collaboration with policy may also be required. Thank you. And Dr. Foreman, thank you very much, both for your um, excellent work uh, in the article and your wonderful summary. Um, and I particularly like sort of bringing it back to both the, rel the relevance uh, for us in the healthcare system and really left now with, I think, really some pretty compelling results. Um, and even if we want to argue about the effect of, you know, the potential of present, preventing 70% of hypertension, clearly there's a compelling information that this is something that we really need to take on um, in healthcare. And I think for us, really, the challenge is um, how can we really help women to achieve the lifestyle changes that will have such a powerful health benefit, and more specifically, what do we need to do in the healthcare system to support um, these kind of lifestyle changes. And so I guess I'd ask you, Dr. Foreman, do you have any quick comments on um, things that you either have observed or you think would be um, particularly powerful for us to do within healthcare to help women make those changes? Well, um uh, just to clarify, you mean things that I do in my practice or uh, things that I've uh, seen done with uh, healthcare in general that could potentially? Yeah, either. I, I, I'd love to hear your insights on things that you've seen be effective for helping women make these kinds of uh, lifestyle modifications. Right. So, 
again, um, just to just to point out at the beginning, um, you know, my clinical practice as a nephrologist, I mainly see people on the um, on the other side of hypertension after yeah. already having uh, the complications of, of long-standing hypertension. But uh, I do address these issues in my clinical practice, um, and I find it very useful to have in, in, in the clinical practice to have a dietitian present in the clinic. Um, and, and I focus uh, quite a bit on salt intake and healthy diet in my clinic, and I share that responsibility in discussing that with my patients with uh, the dietitian who works very closely with myself and the other nephrologists who work in my clinic. Um, I do talk about exercise. I talk about weight with my patients, and that's... Um, uh, that, that's more of, a, of an individual clinic-based uh, method for getting people to live a healthier lifestyle. Um, in terms of uh, looking at the broader picture, um, I think that uh, things uh, that there are there are certainly policies that could be put in place that could help. Um, such as, uh, for example, uh, posting uh, and this, this and again, I'm not a I'm not a policy expert, but um, Posting uh, things like the salt intake of food in fast food restaurants or the calorie intake of food in fast food restaurants or chain restaurants in New York City, which is a relatively new policy, which I believe has had a beneficial effect, um, and, and, and things such as that. Great examples. Well, yeah, thank you. And, and what I heard in that that I think is really borne out by a lot of the process change literature or behavior change is that it's critical to have um, the physician or the practitioner uh, really reinforce the importance of the lifestyle changes. But often we use a team-based approach, in your example, using uh, dietitians to give more information and who are generally able to spend more time with patients. So that's a great example. Um, I'd like to now turn to questions from our callers. Uh, your questions can include anything about the implications of the research, how to use the information, um, but also please feel free to share examples of what you've already done or what you're planning to do. Any questions in the queue at this time? Uh, Dr. Shu, looks like we have one question in the queue coming in from Franklin Memorial Hospital. Please go ahead. Hi there. We're interested in knowing where uh, tobacco use and smoking uh, came out as a potential risk factor for hypertension. Uh, great question. So was, was that looked at, and um, is that independently associated with developing hypertension? Dr. Foreman? So that's a great question, and I think that uh, from my reading of the literature, that is still um, a controversial issue, whether smoking um, past or current is associated with incident hypertension. And I can tell you that in the particular cohort that we examined, the nurses, the second nurses' health study, uh, we did not find an association between smoking, uh, an independent association between smoking status and the risk of developing hypertension. Uh, but I know that there are other cohorts uh, where uh, a significant association has been found. Great. Uh, thank you. And so I guess stay tuned for more information about that. Um, any other questions in the queue, Bo? Yes, gentlemen, we have uh, one more question coming in. We'll take that now. It's coming from uh, QSource. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, I was wondering, um, you said when you were talking about um, looking at the exercise factor, it was daily exercise, um, but um, I don't, that's not the recommended amount of exercise, right? So what was the reason for using daily exercise as the marker? Uh, 
Thank you. Uh, yeah. So um, we, we there there. I know the recommendation from the CDC is for uh, cardiovascular uh, protection uh, is three to four, I believe it's three to four times uh, per week of moderate exercise. Um, but in our study and some of the other uh, cohort studies that we've, uh, that, I, that I examined, uh, moderate exercise uh, was not uh, significantly associated with a lower risk of hypertension, but really uh, more vigorous exercise uh, was associated with uh, a lower risk of developing high blood pressure. I believe in the ERIC um, cohort as well as in our nurses cohort. Um, and for that reason, we um, looked at uh, daily, well, at least on average, a 30 minutes a day of uh, vigorous exercise uh, as, as the healthy lifestyle factor. So really, Dr. Foreman, it sounds like um, that's what it took to get significant uh, protection, basically. Um, that's that, that's what we found in our study, and that's what was found in uh, in several other cohorts that I uh, examined. Great. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Great. All right. And I think that certainly is a challenge. Um, getting uh, folks to really do vigorous exercise for a mean of 30 minutes a day. That takes quite a commitment of time. Right. Uh, and, and, again, you know, we that was an average. So in our study, if somebody did 60 minutes of exercise every other day, uh, they fell into that category of, oh. of having 30 minutes a day of uh, vigorous exercise. Got it. So it really was a total of 210 minutes a week. and That was, that was the group that we, yes, exactly, that was the group that we studied. At least for the purposes of this study, it could be done in any combination. Uh, correct. Got it. Okay. That's very helpful. Uh, any ad additional questions at this time, Bo? Yes, sir, Dr. Shu. We have a few more questions. Uh, we'll take our next question now from Veterans Hospital. Great. Go ahead, please. Uh, Veterans Hospital, you might be on mute. Hello, are you there, Veterans Hospital? Gentlemen, hearing no response, let's move to our next question. We'll take that now from Mary Washington Hospital. Hello. This is Mikhail Crawford calling. Um, I was uh, asking about the, um, when you talked about the absence of folic acid supplementation, um, What kind, how much supplementation are we talking about? Right. So in our study, we defined um, the low-risk profile as being at least 400 micrograms per day of supplemental folic acid. Uh, we we did not examine total folate intake, uh, including folate derived from food and supplements as the low-risk factor because uh, we also examined another aspect of diet, specifically the DASH-style diet, and the DASH-style diet is high in uh, naturally occurring folate. So we, we specifically um, examined folic acid supplementation as the low-risk factor because we all we had another measurement of diet in the analysis. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And uh, then thank you for your question. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Foreman, is, is that the amount that's typically present in a multivitamin? It is, it is the amount that's typically present in a multivitamin, yes. So great. So our patients who are taking a daily multivitamin are, are, are getting that. That's correct. Wonderful. And that's relatively easy to implement also with the, you know, evolving recommendations for uh, higher and higher levels of vitamin D replacement more widely in the population. That, that sort of wraps up nicely into one intervention for our patients. 
Yeah, although I, I would also say that uh, the vitamin D that's present in um, a standard multivitamin is not um, typically uh, enough to, to raise, and I know this is uh, getting off topic a little bit, but <laughs> the standard vitamin D uh, content of a multivitamin is not usually enough to raise, significantly raise people's vitamin D level to uh, the normal level if they are deficient. Great. Yes. Perfect. Thank you. Let's go to another uh, question, if you would, please, Bo. Thank you, Dr. Shi. Let's go back to Veterans Hospital. Hi. Can you hear me? We sure can. Go ahead. Okay. I have several questions, actually. I was trying to find out, uh, Dr. Foreman, if there's a reason that you chose nurses for this study. Um, my other question is, uh, is there a reason more minority women were not in the study because, you know, African-American women especially have a higher incidence of um, hypertension. And if you plan on pursuing studies with minorities in the future. Great. So two good questions, um, really, uh, about the selection of the, the cohort that we looked at. Go ahead, Dr. Foreman. Right. So uh, these, these are great questions, and I, I think I should probably start out by describing uh, the Nurses' Health Study, uh, which began in, uh, just briefly began in 1989. And in, and, and the, the, what, what we examined was the second Nurses' Health Study. There was a first Nurses' Health Study, which started in 1976, um, and this gets to why we chose nurses. Um, and the first Nurses' Health Study in 1976 was originally intended to be a doctor's health study but the investigators couldn't get enough physicians to be interested in joining the study. So um, nurses were um, then uh, enrolled in the study, and uh, you know many of the many of the nurses wanted to participate. So in 1989, the second nurses' health study was initiated, and that year, all uh, registered nurses in the United States were uh, contacted and were invited to uh, participate as long as they were of a particular age. And uh, basically the reason um, that there were not more African Americans uh, was at that time reflective of the, uh, the roles of registered nurses in the United States in 1989. So the, the percentage of African Americans in the study, which is around uh, 2 to 3%, actually uh, reflected the, the number of African Americans who were um, registered nurses back in 1989, um, and so there, no, no, there weren't any um, selections against a particular um, race or for a, a particular race, but that just it just happened to work out that way um, based on when the study, study was started and who was invited. Um, in terms of the uh, sorry, you were about to uh, say something. Oh, oh, no, I was just going to say that that makes sense. And to remind people that this was not a prospective study that was designed with specific populations. This was really a, a retrospective cohort study. And in many ways, um, the population was one of convenience uh, in in because, um, you know, there was a way to reach these women and invite them. Um, so it really was in many ways a sample of convenience. Would you, would you agree with that, Dr. Foreman? Um, I, I would say that uh, yes and no. So first of all, I would, say, I would argue with the, the idea that it's a retrospective study. Even though it, the study started 20 years ago, uh, all of the information on diet and lifestyle has been continuously collected over the course of the study and collected before the, the outcomes. So therefore, it is a prospective cohort study. Thank you. Um, and, and therefore, is, does not have the, uh, is not subject to recall bias 
based on asking people who have already had the outcome, you know, did you have a particular risk factor 20 years ago? So all of the information is collected prospectively, um, and, and this uh, obviates the problem of recall bias. But in, in terms of whether it was a convenient sample, it was um, – and, and, and that basically all nurses were registered nurses were invited, and those that chose to participate were enrolled. Um, and and but but health professionals was the goal from the beginning. So so as I said initially uh, back in '76, uh, doctors were um, were you know the attempt was to get doctors to enroll, um, and then other health professionals, nurses were enrolled with the idea that their reporting of health information would be more reliable than um, health information reported by um, somebody who's not a health professional. So, for example, if you ask a health professional, have you had a myocardial infarction, uh, the, the, the reliability of the information that you're, that you're going to get is, is, is higher than the reliability if you ask somebody who is not schooled in, in, in the medical field um, whether they've had a myocardial infarction. So, in, in that sense, um, it, it, health professionals were specifically targeted. Got it. That makes good sense. Did that answer your question sufficiently, or do you have any follow-up questions? Yes, it, yes, it did. The only thing, or do you plan on pursuing this oh, in, right. in the future, doing any more with it? And what was the age range at that time that you were looking for? So the age range of the nurses' health study, the second nurses' health study, um, was 27 to 44 years old at the beginning of the study. And, and then in terms of where to go from here, um, if, if there were um, a large cohort of African Americans um, with this type, uh, this richness of, of uh, lifestyle and dietary information, uh, that would be a wonderful, uh, wonderful cohort to study and to try and replicate the results in um, an African American population. And I think that the two studies that could potentially do that, that have large populations, um, and have also collected this type of data are the ERIC cohort, A-R-I-C, or atherosclerosis risk and communities cohort, and the CARDIA study, um, which I believe is based out of Chicago. And those two studies enrolled a large number of African Americans, I believe, and not, not 84,000, but on the order of, um, I believe, around between five and 10,000. And it would, I'm not part of those cohort studies, uh, so I wouldn't be able to do it, but uh, those cohorts potentially could do this type of analysis in African Americans. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you for your question. Um, Bo, can we go to the next caller, please? We can, Dr. Shu. We'll take that now from Massachusetts General. Go ahead, please. Uh, Massachusetts General, do you have your phone on mute by chance? Yes. Can you hear me now? We can hear you fine. Go right ahead. Um, I have one question regarding the applicability of this study to um, menopausal women. What's your specific question? Well, are you planning to do any follow-up? Um, yes, so there is um, another nurses' health study, as I said, the first, the first nurses' health study, and these women are now in their 60s and their 70s. And, um, you know, I think that's a, a terrific question because, um, you know, the slope of hypertension incidence uh, changes somewhat dramatically around the time of around the time of menopause. And so, um, re repeating these findings in postmenopausal women um, is certainly something that would be of great interest. Uh, 
the, the, the power of that study um, would probably be less than the statistical power of this study, um, but I think that that's definitely something important to, to examine that is on our, our, um, our plate at the moment. Uh, that's great. And so, so is your question, do these lifestyle modifications, are they effective for women postmenopausally as well? Uh, okay. With, so with, so with, I, I, with, can actually, I can actually answer that. Great. Um, so in the first nurse's health study, uh, these individual lifestyle factors have been examined individually, so not in a study such as this where there's been a calculation of the population attributable risk, but the individual study uh, factors have been studied and the results are similar as in the second nurse's health study. So for uh, meaning that, uh, you know, a lower body mass index, a higher degree of physical activity, et cetera, et cetera, a higher DASH diet. So those, those analyses have been done in older women, and the results are similar. Great. Thank you. Did that answer your question? It did answer my question, but I also wanted just to say something. Um, you had asked if anyone has had experience, if any hospitals have had experience with um, lifestyle um, education, and um, yeah. we are looking at uh, wellness coaching as part of a uh, integration of teaching patients on um, um, you know, staying with the patient and coaching a patient through actually exercise, diet changes, etc. Wonderful. And and who is the target population for these people? Are these folks that have been admitted to your hospital, or is this an ambulatory program? This is a um, um, again. This is being piloted. It's an ambulatory program at the present time. Wonderful. And it's for a primary care practice population. So it's being piloted in an outpatient primary care practice. Wonderful. And can I ask one more question? I'm just curious, how is that being funded? Because one of the big issues with lifestyle coaches and, and the kind of things that help with uh, lifestyle modification are often not covered by traditional insurance. So I'm just curious how that's being funded or financed. Okay, so it's a pilot right now, and it's being financed by our um, primary care organization, and um, that's being, looking, being looked into as to how a, a typical patient would be able to afford something like that. Because at the present time, it's not, as you said, covered in typical medical insur by medical insurers. Great. Well, thank you very much for that um, information, and um, hopefully that will go well, and we can find a way to scale that up. David, do you mind if I ask a question based oh. upon what the caller just said? Please do. What you just said is, 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 it, uh, is it true, and I've heard that uh, certain insurance companies will give discounts um, if the, uh, the enrollees in their insurance uh, plan uh, join gym, join a, a, an exercise facility, or have other um, memberships that improve their, their, their lifestyle? Is uh, that that's correct? A, that's a great question. I'll, I'll first ask our caller if she has any knowledge of that in, in your area. Um, and, uh, one of my colleagues will answer that. Hold on, please. I'm moving the phone. Certain payers do include that. It, it depends on what kind of a product the uh, individual has. So, and, and you know, that's great. That's very encouraging. And uh, I'm in the Portland, Oregon market, and I know we have some of our payers who do have um, patient-level incentives for lifestyle work. And there's also some employers, actually, who create incentives in the workplace for lifestyle modification and behavioral change. And I, I do think that's very encouraging. Um, and there is uh, some pretty good data out there that patient incentives do work. Um, they do help. So uh, that's, that's encouraging. 
Um, let's go ahead. Uh, any anything else, uh, Dr. Foreman? Oh no, no, that's it. Yeah, great. Uh, Bo, let's go ahead to our next caller, please. Hey, gentlemen, just so you know, it looks like we have about uh, five more questions. We'll take our next question now from HQSI. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Um, let me actually preface this by saying I'm a strong believer in uh, population efforts to reduce um, uh, sodium intake. Um, I'm just interested for Dr. Foreman, on an individual basis, given that it's so difficult to make changes in diet for individuals, do you um, uh, do anything to test the sodium sensitivity of, of the individual patients before you recommend that they cut back on sodium intake? Uh, I personally, that's a, that's a very, very good question, uh, you know, and, and the, the sort of the going, um, hy the going uh, figure that I, that I know is, uh, that I've heard is 40% of the hypertensive population are salt sensitive. Um, but in, in, just, just to, to, to say again, I'm a nephrologist and so the people I see are people who have chronic kidney disease and in my experience all of them are, are salt sensitive. Uh, I think once there is a uh, significant amount of uh, significant enough renal damage to to increase uh, the serum creatinine and then have the person come to the recognition that they have chronic kidney disease, uh, I, I, I think all of them are are, are salt sensitive, and so I I discuss uh, salt intake with basically everybody um, th that I see in clinical practice. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, for the questioner, do you do that in your practice at all? Um, not in clinical practice. I'm, I'm just interested from a uh, from a population basis if it would be more feasible for people. You know, if you could say to some people, look, you need to uh, change your diet, you need to exercise more. But in your case, you're lucky. You don't have to worry about <laughs> cutting back on, on salt. Right. Well, I think that's an interesting observation because, again, the other thing we know about behavior change is it's um, people do better with smaller and more achievable goals. Um, and if we could differentiate those patients who are or aren't salt-sensitive, that might be useful. Um, but I'm not sure we that really predicts whether or not we're going to be preventing hypertension down the road. Does that make sense? So we, we, we could certainly... Um, identify the effect immediately, but in terms of preventing incident hypertension, that may or may not be right. useful. Any right. comments on that, Dr. Foreman? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I, I, I think that I think that's right. I think uh, having there there are certain populations um, that even before the onset of hypertension may be salt sensitive. And so, it, particularly in certain populations, so uh, there is data uh, that I'm aware of that African Americans and obese individuals are more likely to have uh, salt-responsive changes in their blood pressure, even when they are normotensive, uh, compared to people who are of normal weight uh, and who have who are who are, are Caucasian. So uh, there may be certain, uh, and again, I. I I don't think this has been studied, but there may be some um, uh, benefit to uh, in, in African Americans or obese individuals who don't have hypertension to determining whether they're salt sensitive and making recommendations on that basis. But I'm I don't think I, I'm not aware of a study that has specifically examined that. Great, thank you very much, and thank you for your question. Uh, can we have the next caller, please? Certainly, sir. We'll go next now to Health Point. Go ahead, please. 
Yes, hello, this is Marcolina. Question for you. So um, you studied last year um, the role of vitamin D levels in um, preventing hypertension in, in, the hyper, in the hypertension journal. And so I was just curious as to whether or not you could go back and look at that statistic, you know, the, the vitamin D intake of these this cohort of patients, because obese patients also are at risk of vitamin D deficiency. Mm-hmm. So is there a link there, and is that another um, modifiable risk factor for our patients? Right. I think that's a, a great question. So let, let, me, let me answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, um, the, the paper that was published a year ago in hypertension, uh, we had measured uh, plasma uh, vitamin D levels in about in around 1,500 women from this cohort. So um, this the cohort study that, that appeared in, in JAMA um, a month ago was 84,000 women, and we were able to measure these lifestyle factors in everybody. But only a fraction of those 84,000 women have blood samples. Uh, the blood samples were not take were not collected from those women at baseline. They were collected midway through uh, the, the 14 years of follow-up. And um, you know, in everything, uh, all of the research takes uh, takes funding, as David uh, alluded to earlier. Um, so, f- having enough uh, grant funding to to measure vitamin D on all of the individuals in the study would be fantastic. Uh, but we only have vitamin D levels measured in a limited number of these women, and so we could not. And I. I I'm sad about this, but we could not have vitamin D as the seventh um, modifiable lifestyle factor. However much I would like to have vitamin D levels on all of these women, we, we, we just didn't have that information. Um, the, other, the other thing I would say is that although we have randomized trials of the individual uh, factors, of these six factors, um, we don't have convincing yet. We don't have convincing randomized trial data. Uh, showing that vitamin D supplementation in people who are vitamin D deficient lowers their blood pressure or reduces their risk of developing hypertension. So, you know, I can say with confidence that weight loss from the, all of the randomized trials that have been do, that have been done that weight loss reduces blood pressure. Uh, there have been 11 trials of vitamin D supplementation and uh, blood pressure, and about half of them show an effect, and the other half don't. And the other half that don't maybe maybe didn't because of power issues, but there has not yet been um, a random, a large-scale randomized trial specifically to look at the blood pressure effect of, uh, of vitamin D. Um, and so I, I would love to have vitamin D in all of these women, um, but even, and I would love to include it as the seventh, although I think I'd be on a little bit more shaky ground uh, including it as the seventh lifestyle factor. But I think that's, I think that's a great point. Uh, did that address your question? I'm just wondering, is, is, is it something that we should bring up with our patients if we do everything and, um, you know, we still haven't gotten optimal control? And um, is that something, you know, to kind of throw on there? Right. So is there enough evidence to recommend it in patients who are um, already successful in the other six? Um, Dr. Foreman? So I do, but um, I, I can't. Uh, I can't say that I, ha- I, I I can't back that statement up with uh, you know a, a preponderance of randomized trial data that taking vitamin D and, and raising vitamin D level is going to lower blood pressure. So I I, I do it um, because I I believe it, but, but the evidence uh, I, I don't I don't I can't back that up with with enough evidence to say it uh, very firmly. That's a great answer. 
and, and a lot of us do a lot of things that don't really have the evidence to back it up. So, all right. Well, thank you much for your question. Uh, Bill, let's go to the next caller, please. Certainly, sir. We'll take our next question now from CMS. Go ahead, please. Uh, oh, hello. This is Kim from uh, CMS. Um, I would like to know whether you know of successful uh, community models for lifestyle um, interventions as such. Um, I know that in the Washington, we had some experience with uh, in King County uh, through different funding. There was program, for example, uh, you know, looking at the environmental factors and addressing some of the barriers for people to achieve lifestyle modification. Um, I know it was a huge effort, and um, but I just wanted to know whether around the country whether there are other also successful models. I mean, just to take some example, it, you know, as we well know, I mean, for example, for a person to um, uh, drop smoking, I know even though smoking is not part of the study, uh, but a whole lot of environmental support need to be in place, for example, a no smoking building on sidewalks and things like that. And, and so where uh, for... Um, um, the physical activity side, um, I know the in King County, it involved working with parks and recreation to make, uh, uh, to make uh, bypass and, and available and to make walking trails safer and, and it's just a whole lot of things. Uh, and, and I, and, and, and I know that, that, um, those types of, uh, community activity or I guess the buy-in or get together is a lot harder to achieve since it involves so many different um, agencies yeah. and um, partnerships. So, so I would like to know, like, more about that. And right. Yeah, Kim, thank you for your question. So what you're really asking about is other examples of successful uh, community-based efforts um, that are successful in terms of changing some of these modif modifiable lifestyle variables. Uh, Dr. Foreman, do you have any knowledge of other communities who have undertaken this with success? Um, I don't. Uh, I, um, you know, I'm, I, I know that uh, in terms of uh, citywide approach, uh, some of the the efforts that New York City has um, put forward have had some effect on behavior. If uh, I don't know whether there's uh, any evidence that it's lowered blood pressure or improved the cardiovascular health of the population, but uh, in terms of uh, you know banning smoking in 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 public areas or listing the, the nutritional information in chain restaurants, I, I believe there's data has had some effect on behavior. Um, but in terms of uh, large-scale community projects, I, that's not my area of expertise, and I don't know. Um, uh, I think that one of the callers before from Mass General uh, talked about uh, at least a hospital-wide approach, but in terms of community approaches, I'm not sure. Great. And, yeah, I would think it would be very difficult to link um, those kind of interventions to actual clinical endpoints. Uh, but certainly we see links to behavior change. Um, and I know in, in Portland, Oregon, there's been lots of work uh, by the Department of Public Health uh, to actually create environments that encourage exercise. Um, and that has been um, met with clearly changes in behavior of the population. But it's very difficult, obviously, to link that back to um, to clinical results. Um, but I think it's probably pretty obvious that there's a tremendous opportunity in the policy arena here uh, to make it easier for um, uh, people to do the right thing. 
You know, um, there, there, just you just jogged my memory. That I don't. I'm not sure about the United States, but uh, and perhaps the caller who called in about salt uh, earlier would know. But there is there was a northern European country. I forget which one. Uh, perhaps the Netherlands that instituted a either regional or nationwide program to uh, limit the amount of salt that food manufacturers uh, put in the food that's available at the grocery store. And they did demonstrate, if I'm not mistaken, a decrease in blood pressure. So, you know, that's one example of a program uh, from a policy standpoint in which um, sort of regulation, uh, i.e. regulation of the food industry, actually had showed public health improvements. Um, but, again, that's not a community-based program. That's a more of a nationwide policy program. Great. Well, thank you for that. And, Kim, thank you for your question. We've got time for one more quick question. So, uh, Bo, next caller, please. Gentlemen, we'll take our final question from a private practice. Danielle, please go ahead. Thank you. Um, I Actually, my question uh, was about the DASH diet scores, um, mm -hmm. but perhaps, and I know you're, you're running out of time, but I just wanted to comment, too, it's interesting that you're, uh, last caller was questioning about community-based programs, and I am—I've recently relocated, but my last position was with um, uh, an organization called Community Cardiovascular Hearts in Motion in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which started as a pilot project three years ago to take uh, cardiac rehab out of the tertiary care hospital um, and bring it to the community in a broader sense. And it is a team approach. And so it really kind of fits an example, I think, of what your last caller was asking about in terms of addressing uh, these risk factors of weight and exercise and healthy eating um, and, and all of the others that you've mentioned. So in terms of my personal experience, that that is, a, is an existing uh, program that uh, is on the community level that's looking at bringing this, these kinds of services and addressing these risk factors. Uh, thank you, Danielle. That's actually a great example, um, and, and I think it really illustrates what's probably obvious, that the healthcare delivery system itself um, really doesn't have the resources to address this issue, um, both because of its breadth and really the depth of support that's needed to get these kind of successes. So thank you very much for your comment. And my question was, I just want to know a little bit more. As a dietitian, I'm curious to know a bit more about the DASH scores. It was commented that, um, you know, in, in dichotomizing, to use the word that was used, um, the, the six top risk factors in terms of DASH, the top 20% of DASH scores were used. And I'm mm -hmm. curious about how those scores are achieved, or is there a specific tool that you use for that? Right. So, um, you know, again, this was not a randomized trial, so, you know, the DASH, uh, trial actually was a feeding trial in which all of the food was provided uh, to the participants of the randomized trial, and that's certainly not what's going on here. So we had to do our best, and our best was um, the dietary information that we uh, get from uh, what are called food frequency questionnaires. I'm sure as a dietitian you know what the food frequency questionnaire is, yeah. uh, but it's a it's a uh, uh, an instrument that is uh, probably the ideal instrument in large longitudinal cohort studies to get an idea of um, uh, 
uh, a person's diet, whereas if you're doing it with a smaller population, doing something like a diet diary might be better. For large cohort studies and longitudinal follow-up, the food frequency questionnaire is great. So from the food frequency questionnaire, you know, we used factor analysis. So we had uh, six uh, dietary factors, and people were rated uh, based on their responses uh, to the food frequency questionnaire on how sort of healthy or unhealthy they were in that particular factor. Um, and um, divided into quintiles. So for each of these, um, sorry, eight factors. And so for each of these eight factors, uh, they were given a score of one to five based on how healthy they were with that particular factor, such as, um, you know, uh, eating fruits and vegetables. Uh, if they if they ate a lot of fruits and vegetables, they got a five. If they hardly ate any or didn't eat any, they got a one. And so then all of that was added up, and people had a overall dash score based on factor analysis, uh, anywhere from eight to forty. And they then that those all eighty four thousand individuals were divided into quintiles. And so we. And it was sub somewhat arbitrarily uh, defined the highest quintile as the people being um, clo most closely on the DASH diet. So obviously it's certainly not a perfect measure of diet, and there's probably a significant amount of misclassification in that measurement, but um, you know that type of misclassification would probably actually underestimate the effect as opposed to overestimate the effect. So in fact, the, the effect of diet, the association of diet, and hypertension may actually be stronger than what we found. Um, but, uh, but, but getting back to, to, to your question, so we used factor analysis and the food frequency questionnaire and gave people scores of 8 to 40, divided them into quintiles, and picked the top quintile as the people being on the, uh, the a DASH style diet. Great. Well, thank you for your uh, answer, and uh, thank you for the question, Danielle. Um, that is really all the time we have for questions today. It's been a wonderful discussion of the issues uh, brought up by your your article, Dr. Foreman. Do you have one or two really brief closing comments you want to leave us with? Um, so, in terms of uh, closing comments, I would uh, you know say again that. Uh, uh, at an individual level, uh, combining healthy lifestyle factors can uh, may substantially reduce the risk of developing hypertension. And according to the study, women who followed six healthy lifestyle factors had nearly an 80% reduction in their risk. And then at a population level, uh, a large fraction of new cases of hypertension could potentially be prevented if uh, through lifestyle modification. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. Um, and again, I'd like to thank you for your participation on the call today, Dr. Foreman. Um, and as a reminder uh, to everyone on the phone, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, our next uh, discussion, uh, our next uh, article uh, will be a 62-year-old woman with skin cancer who experienced wrong-site surgery, review of a medical error by Dr. Thomas Gallagher from University of Washington in Seattle. Um, this program is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of Author in the Room, and have a good day.